As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. and welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm Chris Kim, and I'm here with our host, Sean Lee. Today, we have Brett Waycart, Haas alum and CEO of Skillfully. Skillfully builds tools for employers to design and manage a workforce defined by skills. Brett, welcome and glad to have you on the show. Guys, so good to be here. Thanks for having me. Could you talk a bit about what Skillfully is and what do you do to focus in on as you're in your role as the CEO of the company? Yeah, sure. So Skillfully at its core is building a more equitable alternative to a lot of the employment platforms that are out there today. And we reach that equity by focusing on the demonstration of relevant job skills, first and foremost. So a lot of the other platforms that are out there today, they build this monstrous base of of job seekers. Think of uh, a LinkedIn global audience or an Indeed and the amount of job postings and members on their sites. The technology is really focused on going from this large global group of candidates and then winnowing it down to a much smaller group of candidates that is engageable and manageable by a human HR officer on the other side of the computer at the employer. That is what we refer to as kind of negative logic filtering, where you're looking for reasons to eliminate somebody from that candidate pool. You're looking for maybe gaps in employment or they didn't go to the right school or go have the right background, whatever it may be. There's a thousand different ways to, to eliminate somebody. Skillfully is built around the premise that what really matters and what's really most representative of someone's potential in a particular job is not the match in some of those factors that have become the heuristics, that have become the metrics that those systems really base themselves off of, but rather the affirmative confirmation that you actually have the skills that are required for a particular job. The deeper and deeper we've gone into this, the more interesting the subject becomes. But what we're able to do on a not just employer by employer, but on a role by role basis is to determine the specific skills that employer is looking for. Those could be job skills. They could be intrinsic skills like cognitive or behavioral kind of innate skills. And that forms a unique archetype, a target that manager is really looking for. And what we do, our technology is essentially matching software that then looks at the skill sets, the unique skill sets of every member on our platform, every job seeker, and then introduces that member to a job based on that fit, based on that match in terms of the skills somebody has and then the skills an employer is looking for. That's step one for our process. We don't filter the candidate pool beforehand by age, race, gender, by school, by academic or education or employment background. It really starts with that skill. That's the the foundational thesis. And then I think the second part of the question is, what do I do as as CEO there? Just try to stay out of the way of all of the brilliant people who we've convinced to to come work on this project with us. I think you've you've spoken to one of my co-founders, Kelly Cure, who is an absolutely sensational rock star. She runs our growth, but she really runs everything that is looking at our job seeker audience and how we grow that. Johnson, the third co-founder, the third leg of the stool is our head of product and is looking at everything there in terms of the product vision and the development of the the technical piece. And then I fit into really speaking to a lot of the external stakeholders. So a lot of the employers, a lot of the investors, the partners, that's kind of the general breakdown. But I think as Sean and you know, things become a little bit less organized, especially in a quickly growing company. So chief everything officer tends to be what it really means. 
That's awesome to hear, Brett. Where did you grow up? And how did that, you know, your early life influence where you are today, you know, and maybe even how you lead the company? Mm, great question. So I grew up outside of DC. I grew up in Maryland on the East Coast. Very cool. I was convinced I was going to be an East Coast kid for my entire life. I think it was turning 35 in a few weeks here. And I don't think it was until I hit my late 20s that I realized I was going to be California bound. But my early career, I was a finance guy. I went through business school and undergrad, and I was convinced I was going to be on uh, the kind of stereotypical finance track. I graduated in 2008, which is just about the worst possible year to, uh, to graduate with a finance degree. Uh, Could be. <laughs> just, yeah, just like a few minor news items there that, you know, if you were planning to go onto a path, I had an offer online from a couple of the bigger investment banks. And they got rescinded as soon as the Lehman news came out and everyone started a, a years long job freeze and the finance industry became a different place. So that really gave me a front row seat, one to the way that a lot of the finance industry looks at employment, looks at human capital, kind of looking at it from that side. I was in finance for seven or eight years, long enough to start building and growing and hiring teams of my own. And I think that really served as a look from the inside to recognize where there were things that were broken, but that were just accepted as like, hey, this is the way things are. I founded a charity or I helped co-found a charity, Portfolios with Purpose, shortly thereafter. It was back in 2013 when I stepped in and, and have helped lead that organization. And that path, that step off of the finance track was probably my first experience in understanding that you could pick a problem, you could find something that was just structurally wrong and start to propose a solution and get people behind it and get momentum and resources and, and energy behind kind of a whatever solution that may be. And we can unpack all of that, but I think that was probably the first little pivot step that took me off of the lifelong finance career trajectory, very New York focused to looking for something more. And, you know, we'll skip over a couple stepping stones along the way. I ended up in, in Cal. I came out to San Francisco with Berkeley, with Haas in the back of my mind, although not sure I was going to do it. And then through all of that process over the years, Haas was really kind of an incubator. It was really an awesome opportunity to think up what skillfully could turn into and, and what we were trying to do in the world. I've always thought it's one of the most fun things to be able to kind of look over your shoulder and, and try to connect the dots to try to see how one thing has led to another. And yeah, no, I'm, I'm still always amazed and, and miffed about how I ended up here, but so grateful for it. And that's really the, uh, you kind of nailed the mission and the purpose of this podcast. We're just collecting people's stories and trying to connect the dots and try to find a recurring theme and then connecting people based on these themes, right? That ultimately derive the passions in our lives. Hey, Brett, you talked about your transition moving out of finance, but I've seemed to become good at asking this question. You invested the time and energy in college to study finance, and then you went into finance for a number of years. What, what got you to come off of that track and kind of pivot in a totally different direction? Almost like the same thing you were saying, like East Coaster for life and then somehow ended up on the West Coast long term here. Chris, listen, that's an excellent question to get to the heart of the matter. The long and short of it is there was a real health scare with uh, someone in my family, one of my parents. And I left New York at the time to come down and support and to just to kind of be present and be there. And it was this kind of an inflection point where it was my father and he was, you know, diagnosed with a type of cancer that was just more aggressive than anybody was expecting. And he's fine now and he's bounced back and technically it's in remission and he's playing golf just like you would never imagine anything ever happened. But I remember at the time 
it was like the the universe grabbed me by the shoulders and, and just shaking me really stinking hard. It was one of these moments that kind of brought into focus the fact that I wasn't really getting everything out of my job. You know, now we're talking about beyond the compensation, beyond the pay, how you're filling your own cup. Uh, I wasn't getting out of it what I wanted for the rest of my career. And that whole process was really interesting to kind of look back on or is really interesting to look back on. But I remember it surfacing this feeling of kind of like this deep inner dissatisfaction is maybe the best way to put it. And coming back out of that, it served as the opportunity to kind of rethink things, to look around, to look at the folks that were on my path, maybe five or 10 years ahead of me. And for me to say, yeah, I don't, like, I, to your point, I've invested time, money, effort. It was hard getting a career started in finance starting in 2008. That's not a, a fun time to try to grind out a career there. But it was also just this like looking down the road and trying to project myself into the same role, the same kind of trajectory, you know, 10 years hence. And it was just something that I, I didn't, I couldn't live with. I didn't want to live with. The Portfolios with Purpose, the charity that I helped to kind of co-found and, and then run, that was really just the first step towards something that felt, and not to get too, you know, maybe fluffy with this, but like a step towards something that emotionally resounded in a way that the career had it. I actually had a mentor at the time who I was talking to about this, and, and he gave me this incredible advice that I wasn't expecting at the time. But he spoke about, you know, think about your own internal emotional Richter scale. You know, what actually leaves a, a mark when you think about it? What was the interaction or the experience that, that made you feel most yourself, but just made you feel the most. And, you know, it had nothing whatsoever when I thought back on it to what I was doing for my job, for the work, for the, the path I was on. And it really led to leaning into and making a more central part of my life, the work that we were doing at the charity at that time. And that was purely one step of kind of a course correction. It was by no means the end objective. I think everyone's still searching for whatever that end goal might be. And, and maybe that's the kind of point of all of this, but that was the transition. It was that kind of moment that it was that health scare triggered a way of thinking that I think I wouldn't have had happened to me naturally or wouldn't have happened uh, on its own. And then that just led to a uh, kind of branching off in terms of the, the path I was walking down and uh, led to a whole series of things that brought me out here to California. But yeah, Chris, that really is the central question, you know, that kind of jumping off point and how that led us or led me to where I am right now. But yeah, no, I love sharing that story. And then I maybe Sean, to your point, the fun of your job. I love hearing kind of the counterpoints and the reciprocals in other people's lives, but I think it's what matters. That idea of the emotional Richter scale has always stuck with me. How did you get into, you know, what you're doing now? Let me give you a, a very brief tour into what the charity did because it led directly to what I'm doing now. So Portfolios with Purpose, it started off as out of the desire to raise more money for some of the charities that were just near and dear to our hearts. And it started as a simple game. It started as essentially fantasy sports meets stock picking. And so instead of picking a team of football players with a bunch of your friends, you picked a charity that you were going to represent and you picked a bunch of stocks for your portfolio. And we wrote a, a little bit of software that just kept track of you versus everyone else on the leaderboard. And it was fun. There's 50 people the first year, you know, it, it was never, I don't think we ever had the ambitions for it to grow the way that it did. But the next year, our colleagues, the folks that we worked with, our friends all heard about this. And a couple of our bosses heard about this too. Some of the folks who run some of the biggest hedge funds in the world and some of the executives at big banks. And, you know, they joined in that second year of the contest. And I remember, I think this is probably out on CNBC somewhere. It's out there in, uh, on the internet, I'm sure. But 
we got a call from one of the producers at CNBC in that second year saying, hey, we've heard that you're running a super secret stock picking contest with all of these crazy personalities. Is that true? And would you want to come on and talk about it? And listen, from our perspective, this thing had barely come together. And this person had been told a fish story of exactly just how big and how secretive an organization we were. But we say, sure. Yeah, let's go talk about it. This will be great. And so we skip over to New Jersey where the studios are. One of my co-founders steps on the show and they put the the website or the our name at the bottom of the Chiron on CNBC. And I mean, Sean, listen, our website was stuck together with duct tape and bubble gum at the time. I think like a stiff breeze would have knocked it over, much less a CNBC viewership midday. And so predictably, the website gets overrun. It's an absolute mess of a just chaotic pile of, of broken website. And we realized like, oh, this is going to be a thing. And that next year, we grew to a couple thousand members and now 5,000 and then 10,000. It's grown and grown and grown. And it's been this really fun community to grow. We've raised about $5 million for charity through this contest over the years. It's been great. We're super proud of that in itself. But to get to your original question, what we were creating was this really fantastic community. And this community of folks who were kind of philanthropically minded, who had an interest in, in trading and investing. This was before the Robin Hood and the Wall Street Bets days, but we were still picking up exactly that momentum. And we had a huge student population that was coming to our site and playing this contest and learning how to invest. And our platform, our technology was capturing all this. We had really good information on who was good in a particular job or with this particular skill, who was learning, what that learning speed was, who was most engaged. And so about a year or two later, we got a, a knock on the door. First, it was Citi, the, the big investment bank, and then Barclays, and then Goldman. And we've spoken to everybody on the street since then. But the conversation always goes something along the lines of, hey, this is a great charity. We'd love to support. We'd love to sponsor. Can we take a look at that data? And we would have so many people that would look at us as an interesting talent funnel because we cast a very broad net. We accept all comers. This is people who anybody who has even the lightest interest in the skill of investing can come to Portfolios with Purpose and learn how to invest. But we would capture really interesting information on their kind of learning curve, their trajectory. And that information was exceptionally valuable and really interesting to uh, big employers who were looking to expand the talent pools that they were hiring out of. And, and what they were doing is what we would now call skills-first recruitment, where they were starting not from where somebody learned a particular skill. It's not asking what four walls physically or virtually you stood in, inside when you learned how to invest. It's just a question of, hey, were you good at investing? Because right. it's a core fundamental skill to these different career paths. And over the next two or three years, we would just kind of you know introduce in a dozen people here, a couple dozen people there. It was very informal, but then I remember we got called into uh, the main city boardroom by the president of city at the time saying, hey, kids, this is really wonderful what you're doing and basically running off of a, an Excel spreadsheet. What do you think about doing this as like an enterprise piece for uh, all of our offices globally? And we just sit there and I think our, our budget might have been maybe like 100, 200 grand a year, like on a good year. We weren't paying ourselves. This was all for fun. So we giggle a little bit and look across the table and say, sorry, we can't. No, <laughs> but what we can do is exactly what we've done. We spun out a new company, a, a public benefit corporation, which is a for-profit company, but with the social mission prioritized over the financial one. And that is entirely focused around that core insight. And the idea here is to provide that enterprise level solution for employers like City, Slack, BlackRock, EY, Deloitte, anybody who is interested in 
looking at the labor pool a little bit differently, starting with skills as opposed to starting with alma maters or GPAs or whatever they've other they've used in the past. And yeah, that's what has brought us here. So to be honest, we had that initial experience when I was still in my first year of the EW program at Haas. And having that kind of a conversation, that's definitely an eye opener. And I kind of put my head down and, and we as a group started setting to work thinking, well, how can we build towards this? Four years later, here skillfully. So have you guys had to fundraise at all? We have. So we've raised kind of an insider's round, we'll call it. We haven't accepted institutional money. We probably will soon, but we haven't yet. We've been entirely insider funded, friends and family. And it's been an interesting road, but we've begged, borrowed and stolen with you know a couple hundred grand of funding where we've built out a product where this is a two-sided employment marketplace. That's how we're structured, a two-sided market where the job seekers are the supply, the employers are the demand. What exists today is a full, fully built out user a UI UX for the learner, for the job seeker. And then we work with the employers in a very kind of hand-to-hand combat type of style where we'll automate more of that down the road when we raise funding, when we get a better understanding of our sales mechanism and the repeatable kind of process that we want to offer to to our customers. But yeah, to date, we've been hustling off of a relatively bootstrapped operation. So who knows, maybe ask me again next season and maybe things will change by then. That That is amazing. We've done something similar as well. I just love the idea because it's always bothered me. I don't know if I should be talking about this, but well, at least publicly, maybe we might redact this, but it's always bothered me that finding a job or, or just matching skills does not exist. Like LinkedIn doesn't do this. Like when they post a job and it says like, you know, we need X, Y, and Z. And LinkedIn, like LinkedIn knows what skills I have, supposedly, when they know my resume, they have my information. Why can't they just say, oh, you have X and Y, here's Z, take this course, and now you can apply, Right. Like, why is this such a black box? Why, you know, why doesn't something exist? Just help me get that job and point me in the direction. And so what you guys are doing makes perfect sense to me. I hope we don't redact this. This is the fun stuff. But the reason I want to redact it, I want to get linked in the idea. (laughs) I hear you. There you go. And listen, if if that's what happens, maybe we can talk about that. I guess that's another... That's what my father would call a champagne problem. LinkedIn is coming after you and trying to steal your idea. But no, I, you know what it is? I think there's room for both approaches because they both accomplish very different things. The arc of technology here, like the deeper we've gone into this subject, the more and more interesting it gets just as almost like an anthropological experiment. So here, like super fast history lesson of just this particular space. And the late 90s, the rise of the, the digital application to a job, that became common where instead of mailing in a resume or calling into an HR person to talk about, hey, I'm qualified for this job, you can submit an application online. And so for an average post, a job posting, maybe a manager was getting 10, maybe 20 resumes to review, applicants to engage and, and decide if they're qualified. Well, now they're getting hundreds, if not thousands. That was the, the impetus for the creation of LinkedIn Recruiter and Indeed and online job boards and resume networks, because then what you needed to provide that HR manager was a tool to, to make this sea of applications this be manageable, have this be something that they could skim the top off of, basically say, hey, we're going to take the very best of these candidates. And then those are going to be the ones that we spend time with. And the last 20 years since I think LinkedIn went public in 2003, LinkedIn does this wonderful job of in a very lightweight fashion, 
scraping some basic layer of information about who you are as a person, who you are as a professional. And there's the resume data and then there's the network data. The resume data, obviously, that's those are all of the keywords. Where'd you go to school? What are, what are your jobs? What are your interests? And then the network is all, who did you know? And do you know somebody I know? Because I'm going to trust you more and you're probably going to be more qualified in my mind or I'll be more comfortable hiring you. Great. For that core problem that this was trying to solve, it makes a ton of sense. That is a great way for technology to provide the benefits of scale of being able to reach this incredibly large audience and then boil it down to a smaller group that hypothetically is going to be more targeted towards what you want than, uh, than the rest. What LinkedIn does beautifully well and what a lot of these platforms have all really mastered is the idea of what are called, it's a weak ties network. Weak ties just in that you only have to give up, submit a PDF of your resume and click a couple buttons to like this and connect to that person. And there you go. That's all you need. We're structured differently in terms of our network structure. And then in terms of the user behavior that a learner has to actually practice on our site. So instead of coming in and uploading your resume, which is a self-attested version of your qualifications, it's you saying, this is why I'm qualified for a job. What you do with Skillfully is you literally prove those qualifications on our site. You earn those qualifications through the time that you might otherwise spend writing a cover letter or recrafting your resume. Instead of doing that, we ask you to actually do the work, do something that is, is representative of the work you might do in a job that you're, you're going for. But that, as a result, gives the job seeker far better information about what a job really entails. What is in this? Is Do I really like this? Am I going to hate it? Do I want to do something different? Well, let's get you that information before you accept a job offer and start going down you know, a, however long the road is. But then for the employer, you get much more granular, much deeper insight about what somebody is capable of, what their potential is. And what's interesting is that LinkedIn scales, scales incredibly quickly. And that scale is what their entire business is built around. It is on creating a network that spans the globe and that, you know, maybe in sometimes crude fashions can then be organized into buckets by keywords, by likes, by your behavior on the site. But it is very crude though. <laughs> sure, it is. And also, let's face it, we're all graduates of, of Haas, uh, one of the best business schools in the world. We all are exceptionally well-connected by virtue of that, by the privilege of being able to go to that institution, as well as what came before it. So we are the ones that benefit from that LinkedIn system. You know, that all of these tools have been built to benefit people like us that have similar backgrounds, similar track records. But we are by far the minority of the actual global workforce. And what gets fascinating, like where this really gets interesting to unpack is when you sit with an employer and we sit with Franklin Templeton and talk about what they're looking for in a particular analyst role or an intern role. Franklin Templeton is amazing because they already have this progressive vocabulary that they're already thinking of people in terms of skill sets, not necessarily backgrounds or resumes. But the qualifications they're looking for are skills that are universally acceptable, whether or not you went to house went to Cal or you went to Brooklyn Community College uh, out of the CUNY system. Like These skills exist in the workforce in a way that LinkedIn is not going to elevate. They're not going to point you in the direction of where that skill is. They're going to point you in terms of these other heuristics, these other markers that are kind of historic representatives of having a particular trait. It's an association or affiliation. At worst, it's a lazy heuristic, a lazy shortcut. They're going to provide scale, but they're going to have that type of, of type two error there where they're going, to, they're going to say, hey, listen, this person is probably qualified, probably. They look and smell like somebody you've hired before. This is probably going to work. But it misses the majority of the labor pool, the majority of the actual hireable talent that exists out there 
who would be just as, if not more than, more qualified than what you're going to get with the status quo tool. And that person is not getting looked at. There's, you're not competing against 12 other companies because somebody went to Cal or Harvard or wherever. But these people have the skills that you need in the, the labor market right now, the workplace. It is like never before oriented around a rapidly shifting set of skills that make somebody good in a particular job in that moment in time. And when the demand for skills becomes more fluid and more dynamic, that's when you start seeing cracks in the, the LinkedIn model. That's where you see an opportunity for us, for instance, to step in and provide a compliment. Provide, you know, we're not saying we're gonna displace these behemoths. They have a tremendous footprint and they're wonderful companies, but they miss something. And that little something, that's enough to, to unpack. That's enough to spend time exploring. I think you're being a little bit modest there. I mean, maybe you want to be modest so they don't feel threatened yet. <laughs> I'm going to wake up tomorrow. My LinkedIn page is mysteriously going to be gone. Somebody's going to reach in and be like, this guy can't be looking at our paper anymore. can't be looking at our platform. J jokes aside, I, I really do think, you know, fundamentally uh, what you guys are doing is so important because you're absolutely right. The recruiter is getting, or an HR person is getting you know, 10, 20 resumes. They have the time to, to really talk to people and, and, and filter and analyze. But when you're getting hundreds, thousands of resumes, you do that skimming process, you know, just skim the top. And the way you skim the top is, like you said, by these outdated methods of just looking at, you know, the top schools and whatnot. And it's not a very equitable or fair process at all. And a lot of times, just from my own personal experience and also stories that we hear, you know, just because someone went to, you know, we're not going to name class, obviously, we're not talking about Berkeley. Just because someone went to Harvard or Stanford doesn't mean they're going to be a great employee or it's the right fit. I think what you guys are doing is amazing. Yeah, no, it, it really is the more, more and more interesting the deeper you go down. Speaking of Harvard Business Review, just put out a wonderful bit of research uh, just a couple weeks ago, but that speaks exactly to this. And one of the things they call out is that a lot of this software, it's turned into kind of black box algorithms that is making decisions on who to screen out and who to introduce an HR manager to. And some of the, the most frequently used bits of negative filter logic, reasons why a candidate is excluded from consideration. One of the biggest is that the screener will see a gap in employment in terms of between particular jobs. And that's justification for a huge percentage of the workforce of the actual employers that a candidate will immediately get screened out just from that. And it's not an HR manager looking at this resume and saying, mm, they look like they have a skill, but there's this gap. It's a computer who says, okay, these two dates don't sandwich together. You're out of here. And so what that then excludes is people coming back from military service, mothers returning to the workforce, people who've taken a break to be able to care for family members who are sick. All of these things, like life happens in those gaps. And that is the most unfair reason why somebody would not be seen or not considered for a job. And it's insane if they have the skills, if they have, they've, the energy, the hustle, the know-how to prove that they're qualified, that they can do a job, but they're excluded for something like that, something's broken. And it happens all the time, everywhere. And more than people will want to admit, but that's one of the use cases for us. That's why we have equity in our tagline, because the system needs to be able to accommodate situations like that. Brett, could you explain maybe why companies might do that? I, I think for folks who maybe work in HR, they, they have some sense of you know what the motivation might be there. But from an outsider's perspective, you might just think, hey, I want to look at the biggest pool possible. I want to get as many people in that recruiting process so I can choose, pick and choose. Why would a company want to just screen out people almost automatically in, in those situations? And 
why is that important for like products like Skillfully that are doing the opposite, really looking at skills? Yeah, no, it's a great question. More is more until it's not. And this idea that more candidates for a particular job means that you'll have a larger audience to select the very best from. You know, there's an upper bounds on when more is more stops being the truth. That the, the, the physics of this means that there is an upper cap in terms of the amount of people that a, a, an HR manager or a team can engage with. Particularly when you look at, like, let's segment the, the populations of companies out there to companies that you would call a brand name versus companies that might be, you know, uh, off-brand or somebody who doesn't benefit from that. But let's think of like an Apple or a BlackRock or a Bank of America. Somebody who's like a well-recognized kind of brand. When they put something up online, they put a job description up there. They're not just getting hundreds of applications. They're getting thousands. And behind that job posting is still a single hiring manager who's responsible for getting somebody like a butt in the seat for that particular role. And so just by the very nature of it, by the fast paced nature of hiring, by how competitive it is, by how it's stretched thin, and honestly, oftentimes under-resourced that some of these HR teams really are. Like, I think certain sectors do a very good job of identifying their people as a strategic asset, but plenty of others look at HR as kind of a, an administrative function. And there, there's a finite amount of resources that go into this. And so those type of tools that make a job more manageable have universal appeal. And if the alternative is saying that I'm either going to use this tool, what's the old saying? Nobody ever got hired, fired for hiring IBM for a job. Like nobody ever got fired for using LinkedIn Recruiter. Of course, everyone uses LinkedIn Recruiter. Why not? Of course, I'm going to use an Indeed job posting or a handshake for campus, whatever it may be. These tools are everywhere. They're ubiquitous. And the assumption is that, okay, that's a, a rational step for an HR manager to take, to winnow that down one way or the other. And sure, it may be imperfect. They may be missing some candidates, but they're going to get a hire. They're going to be able to get onto the next role. And then we're all going to cross our fingers that they can retain that employee or that employee is able to do what they said they were able to do. That's the thing is that the negative outcome of a bad hire typically takes time to realize when you had to spend upfront to be able to make that hire. So the fact that there's that mismatch in timing means that you can continually making the same mistake, the same expense item when you're hiring somebody who you're not going to be able to retain or who isn't a good fit for a role. You're not being forced to come to terms with that in the moment of hire. To be honest, that's what makes our job challenging or our job interesting is to be able to illustrate to employers the potential that has been missed, what's been lost in that process. In some ways, I think that we have paddled into the right wave. COVID, Black Lives Matter, the murder of George Floyd, like it, it surfaced a lot of really difficult conversations around structural biases, around negative employment outcomes, around participation rates in the economy that were uneven demographically. And then that has been, you know, the next logical step is to say, oh, I want to do something about it. That wasn't there maybe four or five years ago. It is now. And Skillfully is perfectly positioned to say, raise our hand to say, hey, you can do something here. We can help. But I think that's the, the logic that is going through the head of the HR manager. It's impossible task to try to find that perfect hire out of a thousand or more applicants. And so how do you do it? I think it's kind of a constant process of trial and error. Yeah, Brett, I know you you just touched a, a bit about the how work has changed in the pandemic. What what has it been like leading a company during the pandemic and where have you felt the most just pressure to grow or to change as like everything around us is just changing and we're still in a state of flux, I think for a lot of us even today. 
Man, what a we were talking about this before we hit record, I think, but what an interesting time to, to be building a company and to be putting something out there. I, I want to want to say, like, hey, we're privileged. We're lucky to have work to put our heads down and focus on. We're lucky to be able to build something, to be in a position here. I think there's so many people that the pandemic took that away from them and it created a, a ton of frustration, of angst, of, of lost potential. And so one, there's just gratitude there to say, hey, the pandemic, it was a fortunate circumstance that it lined up and we had the opportunity just to put our head down and build. In the same instance, you know, we're building a company and we're, we as, there's three of us co-founders at Skillfully, we're all very, very close, but then there's a team outside of that. And the question of how do you create company culture? How do you instill the values that the three of us had when we, we decided to create this thing? How do you do that when you're not all in the room with everybody else, when you're not able to all come together? So that has been a challenge for sure from COVID. It's been a blessing to be able to just kind of put your head down and grind and, and just work. I remember the first couple months of COVID, it was just like, all right, I'm going to get up at eight. I'm going to crack my laptop. And then at 10 PM, there's nothing else to do. I'm going to work until then on my couch and then go back and forth. And you get, you get a lot done that way. On the side, the other downside of this is I'm a social animal, just like a lot of us are. And you know, I'm a hugger. I'm a high fiver. I'm a boisterous yell, joke, laugh. And like, you can't, one-sided conversations with my my Bernadoodle chief human resources officer that only goes so far. You can only really get so much out of that. Yeah, it's been kind of a, an opportunity and a, a challenge in a lot of different ways. But what's been fascinating for us is that I think COVID, we started building this thing. We founded this in 2019 before COVID really came to the forefront. What we had no idea was that wave we were paddling into because COVID was the great equalizer, especially if you were in school. We were talking about this before. I was finishing up my EW and we had just transitioned into uh, Zoom only classes, but the whole world did. No matter, again, if you went to Harvard, BCC, to any school in the world, doesn't matter. You were still in Zoom classes, sitting there in your couch in your pajamas, watching somebody talk to you on that screen. And so everyone was learning exactly the same way. And it became so much harder to continue making the argument that the four walls, virtual or physical, you were learning within that that mattered in a substantive way, that that made some type of incredibly significant difference between who is prepared or qualified for a job and who isn't. And, you know, maybe it took a global pandemic for us to be able to make that argument effectively, but I don't think we would have gotten to where we are right now without that helping to kind of wake people up to this reality. So there's a double-edged sword a dozen different ways, if that makes sense. But it's been an interesting ride for sure. Great. Brett, I know we've had a, a couple of folks who have founded their own startups coming out of Haas or gone on to become CEOs. You know, what, what type of advice would you give to either current students or Haasies or other folks who are listening to the core conversation in terms of what is something that's important to think about when you're thinking about starting your own company or becoming a founder at a startup? That's a great question. I think if I were to look back on any of the successes as small and as early as they've been at Skillfully, and anything I've ever led previously, the number one factor that has contributed to every single win that I would not have had that win without is the people that form the team around me, that are around us, that, that actually forms the group that you're working together with. I think early days, Silicon Valley, the idea of the single founder coding away in their garage, the Steve Jobs and Wozniak sitting there building the first Apple computer, that gets over-romanticized. And I think what gets lost is just how meaningful it is and how important it is to find the team that you want to work with, to build those relationships, to invest in them. I think that is maybe the hardest challenge, but the most rewarding pursuit 
in terms of the, the benefits that have accrued from that is to spend a lot of time and a lot of thought on how to build that team. And, and that is really going to be the secret to your long-term success as opposed to any idea that's locked up between your ears. So I would say that I'm very fortunate. Both of my co-founders, Kelly, she was a full-time MBA student, graduated last year. Johnson was a master's of engineering student, graduated, I think in 2019 with me. Those two are absolutely incredible. And then that has just been multiplied as they've gone into their networks and found people that we've brought on board. And if you're building a company, if you're building something, if you have an idea for anyone who's listening, the only bit of advice I could give is to say, listen, think really hard about cultivating that team because that makes the most, the most difference out of anything else. The only other, the other piece for this, this has been a constant roller coaster. Like it is just one big learning curve that never quits. I'm sure this resounds in a lot of ways, but whether it's me, one of the other co-founders, anybody on the team, we're doing something new that hasn't really existed before. And so there's not a playbook. There's not really uh, a set of answers or a script that we can read off for this. The one thing I can recommend, I just read a lot. If I ever have the inkling of something that I'm not familiar with or something that I am not as smart on as I think I should be, I have an unlimited Amazon Kindle budget. I mind my finances kind of tightly, but there's a few things that I'll spend on. And for me, I'll have probably five to six to seven books open at any given time that I'm just kind of cruising through. And that usually turns over once a month. Any top books that you recommend? Oh man, I am deep in a couple right now for sure. So I love Steve Blank's Startup Owner's Manual. That's a classic. That's easy. Eric Rye's Lean Launchpad. That's another one. Ryan Holiday's Growth Hacking is a wonderful book in terms of how to cultivate an audience of users, of learners. A book called The Mom Test. Have you read that one? Do you have it right there? Or, that was actually recommended to me by Johnson. Uh, Johnson's also a, a big bookworm. But that's been a phenomenal book that's made it very clear just how terrible I was at customer interviews and how important it is to get better at those. Those are what's open right now. Anything by Peter Drucker has been good. Hard Thing About Hard Things is a you know old favorite. That's another one I'm sure. Yeah, that's, a, that's another everyone's <laughs> bookshelves. There you go. I have this on my desk all the time. Yeah, no, that's a good one. Honestly, it's got, you know what's been most rewarding? Like what's made me most effective? And like I used to, I remember what I was talking about at the beginning of COVID, working for 14 hours of the laptop on my lap and just kind of like grinding. I was not nearly as effective as I am now just because making space and time for that, for reading with just like space for the absorption of ideas to figure out, to think about how they resound, to share that with other people on the team. I've found the importance of, of routine in terms of my own effectiveness with the rest of the team, to be able to show up as a whole person. But a lot of that is spent in, in reading, reflection, and a lot of writing. I think that was more than just a single recommendation for the listeners, but that's what's made the biggest difference for me. That's, you listed all the books that are important. <laughs> There's a canon that I'm sure you could put together that's the, the kind of must-reads, but I'm sure that they're all on there. I also had to follow up on a question with your co-founders. You know, We hear this, these stories a lot, finding the right people to work with, but it's rare for me to hear about you know, what are the sets of skills that, speaking of skillfully and skills, what are the skills that you guys were looking for in each other that complement one another? For sure. No, that's a great question. We think we joke about this a whole bunch. There's two components. And this is something that we think about with skillfully as well. First off as co-founders, you want to be really good at what you are doing as a co-founder, as a member of that group. But you also want to make sure that your skills are very different than the other co-founders in that group. And like that's just, you know, that's logic. Everyone 
can kind of recognize that at face value. And so we were fortunate. Johnson has his engineering backgrounds, very deep product vision, very, uh, you know, kind of represents the technical product side of what we're doing. Kelly came to this. Kelly was actually a founder herself. She was a, a CEO previously before we kind of joined forces under the, the Skillfully banner. And I'm one so fortunate that I was able to talk her into thinking that wasn't a terrible idea, but she was running a company that was very focused on kind of a different segment of the user experience than I was thinking about. We do have different skills. We relate to people differently, but she was thinking very deeply about an area of kind of the, uh, the user experience of employment than I was. It was really, you know, this is so fortuitous. I was introduced to Kelly I never would have met her through uh, the MBA circle. We were all working together in the apartment of a mutual friend where me and Johnson were on a whiteboard in this guy's kitchen. And she and her another friend were in the living room, like across, like, you know, down the hall working on her thing. And we literally overheard what each other was working on. We're like, wait a second. That sounds like what we're doing. <laughs> who was um, this mutual friend? <laughs> who was this character? <laughs> uh, engineering guy, good friend. He's in the Bay. He's now on the investor side. Just like, like a member of the Haas network, but we never would have crossed paths otherwise. And I remember that started, I was so impressed with both Johnson and Kelly, but the way that Kelly had gone about building her business, what she was focusing on. And you would ask like, what's most important, what we're looking for. There's the skill component, but then there's also the mission component. Like, how deeply do you care about this in terms of that emotional Richter scale again from beforehand that we were talking about? Both Kelly and I had a different way, a different path that kind of brought us to focusing on a very similar problem or different sides of the same problem. And we recognized that in each other immediately. And that kind of formed the basis of how she came into the group. It was Johnson was in first and then Kelly came in right afterwards. But I think that shared belief, that shared kind of energy behind the mission of what we're trying to do is what really glued the team together in a way that we're, we always joke, we're just so grateful we found each other, but it has made all of the difference. I think any hardship, any speed bump, any curveball that's been thrown our way, I, it's always been something we've been able to manage as a group. And it's because we took the time to, to make sure that those founder relationships were solid. But yeah, no, interesting how the world brings you together. That's an amazing story, Brett. As we wrap up, rapid fire time. I have a couple of questions. East Coast or West Coast? West Coast for life. I mean, you're never getting me out of here. <laughs> you need to put a stick of dynamite under me to get me back to the East Coast. Sounds good. Okay, for the EWs in, in the audience, evening or weekend class? At the risk of losing some friends, evening for sure. <laughs> I think having... Those were really busy weeks, but still being able to have your weekends to go surfing or camping or whatever, that was the only thing that got me through. I couldn't imagine the folks, listen, the people who did the weekends are just stone cold assassins. I don't, they're a different breed of people that can manage that. I am so impressed, but I, for me, evenings for sure. I'll see for life. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Brett, a person or leader that you admire? Oh man. Yeah. My father. That's awesome. And last one here. One thing that gets you excited to take on the day? I would say the prospect of surfing later that afternoon. <laughs> I'm all about my hobbies. The, the hobbies are what keep me sane, as anybody on the team would attest to. So I need a, a, those little kind of goodies at the end of the day to, to keep me focused. Well, Brett, it's been great to have you on the show and, and to hear about your story and everything that you guys are doing at Skillfully. We definitely wish you and Skillfully all the best in the, in the future and want to say thanks again. Such a pleasure, guys. Thank you for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Hope to come back sometime in the future. 
Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S dot F-M. There you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley Haas podcasts. And until next time, go Bears. <laughs>